All right, good morning, everybody. Sorry about the uh, wires here. We're just getting started with Simi Church out here, and we haven't figured out how to do the recording through the soundboard yet, so I'm doing it on my phone. But uh, I know you'll eventually not see the wire as I continue. We are in the middle of a series entitled Losing My Religion. And before I get into the series, I got to share a little bit of story about myself to help you to know me a little better, because you may not. Uh, many of you may not know me all that well, and I'll just share a little uh, story from my life. When I was a teenager, shortly after, not too long after I got my license, I was, uh, drove home one day after work, and I, I parked my car. It was a manual transmission, and, and uh, got out and went in the house, and uh, was in the house, and after a bit of time, there was a knock on the door, and I opened the door, and it was my next-door neighbor, and she asked me to come outside, and I went outside, and my car was not where I had parked it. Uh, and apparently, uh, when I parked it after coming home from work, I forgot to put it in gear, and I forgot to put the emergency brake on, so it just rolled down our street and smashed into her car, <laughs> leaving a big giant dent in the side of her door. And, uh, you know, I felt really bad. That was just terrible, but, uh, you know, she was nice enough to not, you know, make an insurance claim, but did expect me to pay for the damages, and so I did have to give her a few hundred dollars uh, to repair the car. Don't you hate it when you owe somebody something, when you find yourself in that situation, you've done something and now you're kind of owing them? Yeah. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5, right. verses 1 through 10. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, uh, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we've read here is the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever taught. Jesus taught it early in his ministry when he spent most of his time in Galilee or northern Israel. He would go from town to village, he would teach, he would heal, and as a result, he got a little bit of a following in the, in the people of Israel at the time. And at one point, he was up near the Sea of Galilee, and there was such a large crowd there, probably many thousands, he went up on a hillside and he taught the Sermon on on the mount. What we read is just the beginning. It's also called the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, we have eight essential characteristics of what, it, of, of what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. That's what the Beatitudes is. It's, it's sort of the, the, the beginning of just about everything Jesus taught from there on afterwards. It was the starting point. And he began with these eight characteristics, these eight things that he wanted anyone who would choose to be his follower to manifest in their life. In our series, Losing My Religion, we've been focusing on each of the Beatitudes one at a time. You say, well, why is it called Losing My Religion? Well, because there is a lot of confusion with the word religion. There's a lot of different opinions about what religion is and what different people believe. And even within Christianity, there's lots of opinions. And so sometimes with all those many opinions out there, people can get confused. And so the idea is, let's forget about all that. Let's lose all that. And let's just get back to the beginning. Let's just get back to the basic, simple teaching of Jesus Christ. And, and there's no better place to go than the Sermon on the Mount, His greatest sermon. And there's no better place to look in the Sermon on the Mount than the Beatitudes, because it's the beginning. It's the foundation of everything else He taught. In our series, we've been taking each Beatitude one 
at a time. I don't know about you, but I believe in the KISS method. Keep it simple, stupid, right? That works for me. And so I'm good with going one thing at a time. And that's what we've been doing for the past several weeks. We've been going through the Beatitudes one at a time, and we're going to do that. We're going to continue doing that today. Now, before we get into our Beatitude for today, it's important for us to lay a couple of ground rules down about the Beatitudes. And I've been saying this every week. If you've been here for the whole series, you should have these memorized by now. But if you don't, that's okay. And if you're new here, I'm going to share them with you as well. These are just some basic, fundamental, foundational things we need to know before we study the Beatitudes. Number one, the Beatitudes are meant for all followers. In other words, Jesus didn't have different things that he said to different people. He didn't say, oh, you're rich. Here's your standard of what it means to follow me. Oh, you're poor. Here's your standard of what it means to follow me. He didn't have multiple standards. He had one. The Beatitudes is the beginning of those standards. And he expected anyone who wanted to be a follower of his to manifest or to embrace the Beatitudes. Amen. Number two, all followers are meant to manifest all of the Beatitudes. We don't get to pick or choose. It's not a buffet. You don't get to go up there and go, well, I like being a peacemaker, but I don't want being poor in spirit. Nope. They're a complete whole. In fact, they build one on the other. They follow a progression. And Jesus expects all followers to manifest all of the Beatitudes. Number three, no one is born with the Beatitudes. I know that you have children and you may think when they're born how perfect they are, but they do grow up, as we said last week, and, and then we find their imperfections out, don't we? Well, the same is with, true with you and I. None of us manifest these Beatitudes as Jesus described them. We may have certain qualities in us that tend towards being a peacemaker or tend towards being merciful or something like that, but Jesus is not talking about personality traits. This is something much more significant. It's much more profound than that. And it only comes about through following Jesus Christ. These are only things that you can acquire by following Jesus Christ. Next, the Beatitudes separate followers from non-followers. You know, our world loves to make separations. It loves to divide people. We love to call people black, white, Hispanic, Caucasian. I don't know where the land of Caucasia is, but apparently I'm from there. <laughs> We like to divide on socioeconomic status. We like to divide on gender, right? We have all these divisions. Well, in, in Jesus' world, in his group, the only thing that separated people was whether they were a follower of his or not, whether they manifest the Beatitudes or not. He didn't make any other distinction between people. Right. Lastly, the Beatitudes are from another world. They don't, they're not of this world. And, and so sometimes when you read them, you think, man, this is strange. This feels a little weird. This is a bit out there. And so it should be. Amen. Because it's not of this world. These are concepts and ideas that come from a different world. A world that Jesus wants to take you and I to. Right. A world that will last a lot longer than this world. Right. But you're going to have to get comfortable with the otherworldliness of His teaching. Because it does come from something else. So with that, or it comes from someplace else. So with that, let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll get into our study for today. Father, we are so grateful to be together, and just for how you brought us together this morning, for all the things going on in our fellowship here, we pray that your Spirit is with us, and help us to tune in, to dial into the message of the Beatitudes this morning, and help it to uh, manifest itself in our lives, and help us to embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray, Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at our beatitude for today. It's the fifth on the list. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Now, as I said before, the Beatitudes follow a progression. They actually go in order. There's a logic to them. Jesus didn't just throw thoughts out there haphazardly. No, he, ha- he orchestrated everything he said. There was, a, there was a logical thought process going on when he taught the Beatitudes. Each one builds on the next. So up to this point, the first four Beatitudes we looked at are what I call negative in, in their emphasis or in their nature. In other words, they describe what we cannot do or what we are not. Beginning with uh, this beatitude, we're going to see a subtle shift to what we can be or, or, or what, we, what we can do or what we can be. But let me first recap where we've been so far with the beatitudes. There's some new faces in the audience that I don't want you to feel lost. We started off with blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the, that's the picture of, an, of a person who's empty. They, they realize before God that, they, that they're really nothing before God. That really the, the, this bag of bones that we walk around in is really very, very worthless compared when you think about the billions of people that have lived all over this earth and, and, and have lived in history. Who is any one of us? Right? We're, we're really, we really are an empty vessel. And what makes us valuable is what God puts into us. And so the concept was, well, I can't, Jesus can't put into us what makes us valuable if we already think we're full. And so we have to empty ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who realize how bankrupt they really are. And you think of the Monopoly guy, the bankrupt card, he had his pockets turned out, if you remember playing Monopoly. That's blessed in, that's being poor in spirit. You realize that you can't, you can't fill yourself. We're empty. The next beatitude was, blessed are those who mourn. The fact of the matter is, we are all broken. Every last one of us has sin in our lives. We all err. We all make mistakes. No one is perfect. And, and that fact should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to mourn. There should be a sense of dissatisfaction about that. Because we cannot fix ourselves. There's nothing you and I can do in and of ourselves, outside of Jesus Christ. We cannot fix what is wrong with us. Right. We are hopelessly broken. The next beatitude... <laughs> is about meekness. Blessed are those who are meek. And we we studied that word out and we discovered that that word has a sense of selflessness in it. In other words, we as people are very selfish by nature. From the time we're born, it's me, 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 me. And that carries on through our lives. Not to say that we aren't ever selfless at times, but fundamentally we are selfish people. But uh, but Jesus called us to be meek, to realize our selfishness and and to, to try to free ourselves from it as much as we possibly can. And then last week we talked about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and we did an interesting study of righteousness and what does righteousness mean as Jesus meant it. And we discovered that he was talking about perfection. And you remember that moment when we paused in the sermon and said, well, he's calling me to be perfect? Yes, he is. But none of us are perfect None of us can perfect ourselves. It's only through the power of Jesus Christ can we be perfected. And so those four Beatitudes all start off with this kind of a negative tone to them. They're what we cannot do, what we cannot be. We cannot fill ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot be free of ourselves. And we cannot perfect ourselves. This is what Jesus wants in a follower. This is what he's looking for. Not the kind of team you would want to build around you if you were starting a new movement, but it is the kind of team Jesus wanted around him. He wanted people who were aware of these things, who were in touch with these things. Well, today, as I said, this is the first beatitude that's got a subtle change in tone. It's moving from the negative, what we cannot be, what we are not, to what we can be, what we can become. 
what we can do. It's going from a negative to a positive. Another way to think of this is, is put it in, in, I'll put it in a sentence. Only an empty, broken, selfish, imperfect person can truly understand mercy. So let's talk about mercy for a minute. What is it? And why is mercy so important? Before we do that, let's talk about what mercy isn't. The first thing mercy isn't is mercy isn't the same thing as tolerance. If you look at the definition of the word tolerance, it means to respect others' beliefs and behaviors. And on its surface, hey, what a great word. I, I appreciate the word. I, I value that. I think we should, as people, respect differences between one another. But the truth is, the way that the word tolerance is defined today, it's become a hot topic word. It gets thrown around a lot on TV and in interviews and things like that. And the way that the word is practically used in our day and age is to not respect differences, but to approve of differences. That's really what the word tolerance means practically in our culture today. We are expected to approve of other people's behaviors, beliefs, and actions. But that's not mercy. Mercy isn't about approving other people's behavior or actions or attitudes. Mercy is also not the same thing as acceptance. When you think of acceptance, the, the sort of the general way to think of the word acceptance is that we make no moral judgments. But that's not mercy. Mercy actually does make judgments. It actually does involve a, a moral right and a wrong. Sometimes we confuse mercy with the word sentimentality. This is this excessive, nostalgic, or tenderness we feel towards someone or something. Again, that's different than the word mercy. Other times people think of the word mercy and they, they, they relate it to being a humanitarian or humanitarianism. You know, we want to promote the welfare of the human race, but that's not mercy. All of those things maybe may have some elements that, that we approve of, that we appreciate, but none of them are actually the right way to understand mercy. And, and the reason why because, is because none of those words have a connection to righteousness. There's no moral absolute when you think of the word tolerance, or you think of the word acceptance, or you think of the word sentimentality, or you think of humanitarianism. They're lacking a moral absolute. Now remember, the last beatitude we just looked at was righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And when we did that study, we discovered that Jesus had a very specific definition of what righteousness was. And that definition was, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And heavenly Father refers to the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the prophets. The same God that the apostles and the early Christians worshipped. He did not relate that word to any other God or any other moral system. And so Jesus narrowed down the definition of righteousness to, to be something that is defined by and created by God, but the God of the Hebrews, not any other God or any other moral or religious system. And so in order for mercy, uh, to, in order for there to be mercy, there must be a sense of right and wrong that precedes it. When I hit my neighbor's car, it was my fault. I was in the wrong. I didn't put it in gear. I didn't put the parking brake on. And it was right of her to expect me to repay her. 
You see, there's a sense of right and wrong. I could have asked her to be tolerant and just throw right and wrong out the window, but she wasn't going to do that. I could ask her to be sentimental towards me because I grew up, we grew up together and I was one of the younger kids in the cul-de-sac and, oh, feel bad for me and sorry for me, but she wasn't going to do that. I could ask her to be all those other things. Oh, be a humanitarian, fight for the underdog. She wasn't going to do that. And nor did she need to because there was a right and a wrong and I was in the wrong. And that, that right and wrong is defined by God. Amen. We have to accept that. We have to... Uh, and, and I know it's awkward in our culture because our culture does not want to accept this, but we have to accept the fundamental truth that God exists and that He has defined for us what is right and what is wrong. Amen. And Jesus didn't come to any other people. He didn't come to any other religious system. He came to the God that we learn of from the Hebrew people, the God that we read about in the Bible. And so He very limited, very, very, uh, very much, uh, He significantly limited the definition of what righteousness meant. It meant to be like God. So that's why all these words fall short. So let's think about the word mercy itself. What does it mean to be merciful? So I looked it up in the dictionary. Here's what the dictionary says. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. But you know, a better way to understand the word mercy, at least I believe is how Jesus meant it, is to compare it to the word grace. We all like the word grace. Grace is unmerited favor. In other words, a better way to think of grace, or the best way to think of grace, I think, is, is getting what you didn't deserve. Right? That's grace. You're given a gift that you didn't deserve. So let's compare that with mercy. If we use that definition for grace, let's use this definition for mercy, and you'll begin to understand how the word was used by Jesus. Not getting what you deserve. That's a good way to think of the word mercy. You've done something wrong, and you're not going to be punished for it, or you're not going to be consequenced for it. That is, I believe, the, one of the better ways to understand the word mercy. This is what Jesus called a blessed, a fortunate, an ideal way to be both for the person who receives the mercy, certainly it's a blessing when you get treated not in the way that you deserve, but also for the person who gives the mercy, who chooses not to treat someone in the way that they have a right to treat them. It's a blessing, and it's a blessing for both parties. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a connection card and you like to take notes, just write this one sentence down. I like to give you just little sentences so you have easy things to remember. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Just make, that, make a note of that if you're, if you're following along and taking notes. Now, now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about, let's look at an example from Scripture of mercy. Can't think of any other, uh, I mean, this is maybe the best example I can think of in all of the Bible. And of course, it comes from Jesus himself. It's a parable that he told. Parables are stories. They're made-up stories. And the key to a parable is just to read the whole story and then ask yourself, what did that mean? And it's usually very straightforward. Parables are not tricky. It's one big story or a short story that has one point. And we're going to look at this parable and we're going to discover one point. After you get the point, you can go back and nitpick some of the details in the parable and learn some other insights, but you always have to get the point first. It's the old adage, you've got to you know, you be able to see the forest and not get caught up in the trees, right? So Jesus tells this parable, and it is the best parable, it is the best story 
I could think of, it was what he thought of to describe mercy. Matthew 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him a thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So here we have a parable that describes mercy. It describes other things too, but mercy is, is the thing we want to talk about here. We have a servant who, according to the law, was the, the, the master had every right to punish up to and including debt slavery. This servant was in massive amounts of debt to the master. Now, the servant came and pled his case, and the Bible says that the master took pity on the servant. That word pity is another great word to describe mercy. He had mercy on the servant. He saw the servant's condition. He saw the debt he was in, the trouble he was in, the distress that it was causing him, and he took pity on him. Now, he wasn't tolerant. He didn't say, oh, hey, everything, whatever you've done, I feel 100% great about. I totally believe and agree with you that you had every right to go into debt. No, the master wasn't tolerant of that. He didn't approve of what the, what the servant had done. He wasn't accepting and made no moral judgment about the servant. Clearly, the servant was in the wrong. He wasn't sentimental. It wasn't like, oh, this guy's been around for a long time and I really like him. And he, it wasn't any of that going on. He wasn't a humanitarian here. He wasn't you know, fighting for the cause of the underprivileged. It's not what the master was doing. He wasn't doing any of those things. He was simply being merciful. He had a right to consequence the servant and he chose not to. Amen. He chose to not treat the servant as he deserved. That's mercy. There's also grace here because then the master went a step further and forgave the servant of his debt, which is a great example of grace, getting what you don't deserve. But our focus for the message today is on, is on mercy. So here's what I want you to do for a minute. I want you to write down this sentence. Pity plus action. Put that on your connection card under our definition of mercy. Not getting what you deserve, under that, pity plus action. Now, I think that's the best way to describe mercy. It's having pity for someone, taking pity upon someone, but following up with action. And that's the key. There's an action that occurs in this parable. The, the master goes out of his way to not punish the servant. So mercy is not just a feeling it's also an action. It's Man. something we do. I have a, a story of a friend of mine. She's actually a, a member of our church. Her name's Carol, and she's uh, Mayan's uh, mom. I love Carol. And many years ago, we used to meet down in downtown L.A. at the Wiltern Theater. And uh, after some time of meeting at the Wiltern Theater with our family of churches, there was a couple thousand people at the time that would go down there, um, the homeless people in the area figured out that there was a church meeting there, and so they would sort of line up right outside the church looking for some handouts, looking for something. And Carol would make sandwiches. And I, always, I just have this vision of her always. She would go down there, and she would, you know, there they are begging, usually asking for money, but she would give them a sandwich. 
And I always admired that. I always appreciated that because there was an example of a person showing mercy on another person. Now, she wasn't being tolerant. She wasn't being accepting. She wasn't being sentimental. It wasn't a humanitarian thing that she was doing. It wasn't any of those things. She wasn't approving of what they were. It wasn't a statement that I approve of anything you're maybe doing here. But it was an act of, in spite of all that, regardless of all the things that may have led you to this point to where you're begging, I'm going to do something nice for you. I'm going to take pity on you, and I'm going to follow that pity up with action. It's a great example of what mercy looks like. And if you know Carol, this is just the way she is all the time. She manifests this beatitude all the time. In fact, if you met her, you'd go, of course she would do that. Like, if anybody would do that, it would be her. And it really... Uh, sent a message to me in, in my life just watching her do that. I so appreciated it because I didn't know how to react to these people. I, I would go from anger, irritation to, to just whatever. Okay, fine. And give them a buck or whatever I could do. But I was always kind of torn over how to respond. And she was such a shining light to me of what mercy looked like. And, and one way to display it to another person. Not for any reason other than she chose to take pity on them and do something about it. That's a great example of mercy. Pity plus action. Now, this parable goes on though, and it gets more intense. Verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Exactly the words that the servant said, the first servant said to the master. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servants. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. So we've read the parable. What's the point? The point is, if we've been treated with mercy in our lives, shouldn't we, out of that source of mercy that's been given us, be merciful towards other people? And the first servant failed to do this. He failed to pass the mercy on to the next servant. And when the other servants heard about it, they told the master he was thrown in prison because the master expected the servant to treat other servants the same way he was treated. Because we've been given mercy, because he was given mercy, he should have been merciful towards others. But I believe the problem with that servant was this. He felt like he had a moral right over the second servant. He felt like he was totally justified He was wronged by that servant, and therefore he could take out his vengeance. He could expect his justice towards that servant. But the problem is, is he failed to connect the mercy that he had been given 
because the master had every right to throw him and his entire family into jail for the debt that he had caused, but chose not to do that. He chose not to treat him as he deserved. I heard this statement a long time ago, and it's been a really good statement. I'm going to share it with you because it's helped me in my life a lot. Somebody once said that as people, we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. So you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and you scream and yell, what an idiot, you just cut me off. But if we could be in the car with the other person, they might go, yeah, but I, I didn't see you there. I wasn't doing it on purpose. I was just trying to change lanes, right? So on the one hand, the person judged himself by his intentions. But on the other hand, the person in the other car judged him by his actions. And that's helped me a lot. It's helped me think in a better way towards people. You know, I, I have my intentions and sometimes I make mistakes and, and it's unintentional. But my actions, you know, I, I want people to understand what I'm trying to do. I want them to understand my intentions, right? And that has helped me. But let me tell you something. After doing this study, I realized that it's not, it doesn't go far enough. That, that statement, as good as it is, it, it lacks something. And so I'm going to change the statement. And I want you to listen to this because I'm going to add something to it. Okay. We tend to judge ourselves by our intentions, and we, but we judge others by their actions. We fail to realize that God is the judge. See, the problem with us not being merciful towards other people is we put ourselves in the seat of God. We decide that we hold all authority over whatever the circumstance is, and we have every right to treat this person however we feel appropriate. And we fail to recognize that when we do that, we are putting ourselves in the seat of judgment. And that's what that first servant did. He put himself in the seat of judgment. Now remember, the Beatitudes follow a progression. Last week we talked about righteousness. Those Blessed are those who hunger and, st- uh, and thirst after righteousness. And we understand that that word righteous, to be truly righteous would mean to be perfect. Right. So let me ask you a question. Who in this room is perfect? So I see no takers, myself included. So now I'm going to ask you another question. Well, what on earth gives you the right to judge someone else? To not extend mercy. That's the fundamental flaw we make. We fail to recognize that we have been given mercy. That's the, that's the point of the parable. The master is God. We are all the servants. We're all in various levels of debt to God and to one another. But God, the master, is willing to forgive all the debt. He's willing not to throw any of us in jail Amen. or hell for eternity. What gives us the right to damn someone else? Mm. To withhold mercy from someone else? It doesn't mean we approve of what they're doing. It doesn't mean that we, we're accepting of everything they say or do. Of course not. All it means is that we recognize that we have been given mercy. So here's the last thing I want you to write down on your card. I've received mercy. I should be merciful. 
you know, it's not the, 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 the when, I, when I study the Bible, and, and, and this is a, a paraphrase of a famous quote, but it, it's, it's not the things that we don't understand when we study the Bible that are difficult, it's the things that we do. That's what Mark Twain said. And, and understanding the Bible and just reading it in its plainest teaching, without, without you know, stripping away all the complex backgrounds and things like that, if we just look at the plain teaching of Jesus, especially the parables and the Beatitudes, we learn things that are very challenging. I don't know about you, but it is not easy for me to be merciful because I have such a sense in me of right and wrong. And I believe that that sense is good. It should be there. But it's misplaced. Because I feel like I'm the judge then. Well, I've done, my, I've done everything right, and you haven't. Therefore, you need to be consequenced. You owe me. But I always, I struggle to remember that I owe God. And if I can remember that, if I can keep that in front of me, if I can, whatever I got to do to keep putting that in front of me, stay, stay aware of that incredible, uh, stay aware of that, that reality that I owe God, then it makes me more merciful towards others around me. And that's what Jesus called blessed. In fact, he went a step farther and he said, those people will also be shown mercy. So if you want mercy from God, you're going to need to give mercy away. Right. You're going to need to give it to others. Right. And by definition, they don't deserve it. Yeah. There is right and wrong. They have wronged you in some way, or they have wronged someone, and they don't deserve it, but God wants us to give it. Yeah. One side point. You might ask, well then, what do we do? Just let all the bad guys off the hook and never put anybody in jail? No. This is one of those interesting paradoxes of the teaching of Jesus Christ. There are times for judgment, and there are times for mercy. How do you know the difference? Well, the key is by following Jesus Christ. You'll never become really merciful until you actually follow Him, right. and He will teach you. Learning these, these principles will help you know when and where to apply them. Because there is a time for judgment. There is a time that I don't give money to a person on the street, or I don't bring food to a person on the street. I may actually talk to them about their life and their choices they've made, and offer some advice or some counsel or some, and even some correction. That's okay. But then there's other times where I just may choose to offer them mercy. How do I know the difference? Well, I've been following Jesus for quite some time now. And I really believe that when we do that, when you make that decision to follow Jesus, which is what this is really about, the Beatitudes is all about asking the people in the crowd to come out of the crowd and become followers. That's what Jesus was doing when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. Look, here's what it looks like to follow me. Make that decision. I want you to follow me. A lot of things aren't going to get answered right away, but in the process of following, you'll grow in your insight and in your knowledge and in right. your wisdom and in your application right. of what Jesus teaches, in this case of the Beatitudes. You'll grow in your knowledge. When is it right to be merciful and when is it right to allow consequences, uh, to, to allow a person to experience their consequences? When I was a teenager and I hit my neighbor's car, I wanted her to be merciful. I, you know, I wanted her to, to treat me with mercy, and in a sense she did. She didn't sue me, she didn't file a police report, she didn't report it to the insurance, 
we worked out a, a bargain where I just paid cash to repair the car. And that was actually a form of mercy, but she didn't let me off the hook. I still had to pay the money. And that was a valuable lesson for me. That was important. And there are times where we need those lessons in life. So there is this interesting paradox that occurs between mercy and allowing people to experience the consequences of their sin. But they're not in conflict. Because when you are merciful, you're not condoning what they've done. You're just extending them mercy because you've been given mercy yourself. So I receive mercy. I should be merciful. So the last question to ask you is, well, who needs your mercy right now? Who in your life is in need of mercy from you? Is there anyone you're holding something against and you're not letting them go? You're not forgiving them. If that's the case, then I want to call you. I'm going to challenge you. Be merciful. You've been, mer- you've been given much mercy. Be merciful. Amen. You know, I started off with telling that story about me hitting my neighbor's car. I got to tell you a funnier story. Fast forward about 30 years or so, my son Kelly, he's driving. He recently got his license a couple years ago, and he came home from work, parked the car, came in the house, and a few hours later, there was a knock on our door. And I opened the door, and it was my next-door neighbor. It wasn't the same next-door neighbor, because that neighbor had moved out. I live in the same house, but that was, it was the same house of the next-door neighbor, the new people that lived there. They asked me to come outside, and lo and behold, Kelly's car had rolled down the driveway and smashed right into the side of their car. He forgot to put it in gear. He forgot to put the emergency brake on. I looked at Kelly, and I said, well, you're going to have to go out there and make amends and offer to do whatever you can do to make this right, and... And Kelly went out there and apologized, and, and our neighbor, Tom and Paula, they're wonderful people, we're very, very good friends with them. They said, oh, don't worry about it. And Kelly said, well, let me give you some money. And they said, no. Not only did they extend him mercy, but they also added grace in the mix and forgave him the debt. Now, we weren't going to be okay with that, and we figured out a way to give him some money eventually. But I so appreciated what they did. They extended him mercy, and to boot, they threw in grace. They didn't treat him as he deserved, and they gave him what he didn't deserve on top of it. What a great example. But here's the question. Will Kelly do that same thing when someone hits his car? Or when someone does something wrong for him? Here's the more important question. Will you do the same? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. At this time, let's stand. We're going to pray. We'll close out with a final song and encourage you to stick around for some fellowship.